Uh, Well, we are taking a break from our series in John's Gospel this morning to begin a new summer series for seven weeks in the book of Genesis. And um, you're not going to believe what my first words are about to be. C.S. Lewis begins his little introduction to a very old book called On the Incarnation uh, with a warning. And his warning is against what he calls chronological snobbery. And uh, he gives this warning. He says, we as modern people have a tendency to think that people in the past were somehow kind of less human and less intelligent than us. We have nothing to learn from them. We know everything we need to know today. They have nothing to teach us. Newer is always better, we think. C.S. Lewis makes a strong warning against that. The Bible has a very different perspective to chronological snobbery. In Hebrews 12, you will find a long list of names Uh, And and the author of Hebrews just lists off these people who have lived thousands of years ago and he calls his readers not to kind of look at them as antiquated and irrelevant, but to imitate them, to look to the saints of the past and copy the way that they lived. And so over the summer, we are going to try and take something of a blow against chronological snobbery. And we're going to allow what C.S. Lewis calls the clean sea breeze of the centuries uh, to wash over us. We are going to be seven weeks in the book of Genesis. And what I really hope we'll see is that the characters in the book of Genesis are not irrelevant. They're not antiquated. These are not stories that are just kind of mythical. In fact, they're a lot more like us than we think. They worked, they mourned, they lied, they played, they got married, they got hurt, they were confused, they stole, they were full of faith. But most importantly, they received the promises that now, today, we stand in the final yes and amen of in Jesus. And so we're going to look at two things throughout the series. One, how can we learn what it is to live the life of faith through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Esau and Jacob? But we're also going to see how they point us forward to Jesus, to the object of our faith. We start this morning with Abraham. The story of Abraham is at its core the story of a kind of complete 180 trajectory change in the story of humanity. You might have seen the famous book Sapiens, this big book, you might have seen it on the shelves of Waterstones, written by a famous atheist called Yuval Noah Harari. And he goes through the whole of human history and he keeps kind of making these claims about what these key moments in the trajectory of human history are. So for him, he'll say the invention of agriculture, the invention of writing, the discovery of fire, the invention of money. These are the moments, he says, that define the human experience, that define our story, where we went from a kind of downward trajectory, cave-dwelling people, to something that mattered, to something that had purpose and meaning. Well, here's what I want to put to you. He's wrong. The story of Abraham story of Abraham, Genesis 12, is the moment when the human story goes from tragedy to comedy. It's the moment when our story goes from being a downward spiral of brokenness into a story of hope and redemption. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Genesis? We're going to flick around. Uh, but we are introduced to, Je- to Abraham at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis. And if you know your Bible, you know, the kind of trajectory of Genesis until this point, the trajectory of the human story really has been very much downhill. 
Let's recap quickly. Chapter 1 of Genesis. God, from the overflow of his eternal Trinitarian love, bubbles out in creative joy. He makes the earth, he fills it with animals and plants and beauty, and he says it is very good. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, we zoom in on this garden that God has planted. He puts a human couple in the garden. He calls them to work the earth, to fill it with his goodness, to expand the boundaries of Eden's territory to the very ends of the earth. And that's two chapters of goodness. And then chapter three, as we know, they utterly, completely fail to fulfill this mandate. They believe the lies of the devil. The devil. They disobey the one rule God has given them. It's what we call the fall. And so now Adam and Eve, they find themselves no longer within the boundaries of God's goodness, but outside of God's friendship. And remember this detail, when they're sent out of the garden, they're cast out east of Eden. Then the following chapters, humanity spirals, brother kills, brother murder fills the earth. When Cain kills his brother Abel and God sends him into exile, he goes east into a city of his own making. Now chapter 11, humanity finally unites again. They come together for a great building project and we think finally humanity is doing something good and then it turns out they're trying to build a tower so that they can knock God off his throne. Downward spiral. The text says they look to make a name for themselves. Genesis 1 to 11 is the story of humanity moving progressively deeper into sin. Going progressively further from friendship with God into being the enemies of God. And strangely enough, going further and further east, away from the Garden of Eden. Okay, that's a recap. Second half of Genesis 11, we'll find a genealogy and we read about this strange man named Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's just a kind of city in the south of Iraq. He doesn't know anything about this creator God. He's the resident of a random city in a random country. Nothing about him is relevant to the story so far. Have a look with me at Genesis 12. The wide angle view of Genesis just begins to kind of zoom into this one man, Abraham. For the first time in a long time, God speaks. Before we read Genesis 12, let me just lay out to you where we're going. I want us to see three things. First, the promise of God to Abraham. Then Abraham's response to the promise. And lastly, God's power. Flip with me to Genesis 12 and we'll read the first nine verses. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there. He called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham journeyed by stages to the Negev. So God comes to Abraham, this random sheep herder in Haran. And from seemingly nowhere, he gives him a promise and a calling. So first, a promise. To understand the first five books of the Bible, we really need to get to grips with the substance of God's promise to Abraham. And we can kind of understand it. If you were a student who's part of our guys' Bible study, you're going to be sick of hearing what I'm about to say. But we can understand it with a little bit of rhyming poetry. God promises four things to Abraham. Relation, a nation, location, and salvation. First, relation. This idol-worshipping sheep herder who's never heard of the one true God is going to trade his wooden statues for a relationship with the God of the universe. Notice how often in these verses God refers to himself. I will do this. I will do that. I will show you. Later in Abraham's family story, we find God make an explicit promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. See, the the ground level, the, the ground floor privilege of receiving God's blessing isn't his provision. It's not his gifts. It's himself. We've seen Jesus all through our series in John teach this as well. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we think, to what end? Where are you pointing me to? No one, he says, comes to the Father except through me. That's where the life of faith is going, to the Father. To know God as the ground level joy and privilege of the life of faith. It's the one sentence summary of salvation. I know God. Relation, second, a nation. God promises Abraham he'll be the father of a people that outstrips the stars of the sky. His family will fill the earth. His name, God says, will be great. Do you remember what I just said? The builders of the Tower of Babel, they sought to make a name for themselves. And now God calls this man and says, I will make your name great. Abraham has promised to be given a great name. And if you're new to church, you might wonder why I'm saying Abraham and then saying Abraham. It's because that name change that God gives Abraham kind of halfway through the story is to reflect this promise. Abraham means father. Abraham means father of many nations. This is God's way of stamping his seal on this promise. I'll change your name because my promise to make you a great nation is so secure. Relation, a nation, third location. Go to the land that I will show you, God says. Not only will Abraham's descendants be many in number, but they'll live in a good place. This land isn't abstract. There's a map that's going to come up. You'll notice I said over and over, they went east of Eden. And then he went east into a city. And then they went east to build the Tower of Babel. Top right-hand corner, there's Haran. Haran is east of the land of Canaan. God stops Abraham in his tracks and says, turn around and go west. Go west to the land that I will show you, back towards the blessing and the joy of life with me. Go back towards the goodness of God. 
go against the corrupting eastward movement that humanity has been on so far. This is the first time in the entire Bible that somebody moves west because it's the first moment that God intervenes and brings a change of course. And lastly, salvation. Abraham's descendants aren't doing this just so that they can get what they want. They're to spread it to the corners of the earth. They're to be like Adam and Eve in the garden who weren't just to enjoy the garden but push its boundaries out. Because of Abraham's family, the whole world will be abundantly happy in God's friendship. So that's God's promise to Abraham, relation, a nation, a vocation, and salvation. But notice this, God's promise isn't in a vacuum. It requires Abraham to do something. Imagine you are Abraham in this moment. Here you are. You don't know who God is. You've never heard of this God. You have a family. You have a nation. You have an inheritance. You have an estate. And this God comes and says, I want you to leave everything you've ever known. Not, here's the thing I'm going to give you, but to the thing that I will show you. To the unknown. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's what God says. God gives a promise, but it comes at a huge cost. Which reminds us of the call of Jesus to his first disciples. Matthew 4, we read about Jesus calling uh, Peter and Andrew. And Matthew 4, 18 says this. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, they were Simon, his other name was Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were putting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fish for men. So at once they left their nets and followed him. See the same pattern? A promise, I will make you fishers of men. A promise that comes at a very costly call. Drop your nets and follow me. See the parallel? Abraham has something. God says, I'll give you the same thing, but better. Andrew and Peter have something. He says, drop your nets. I'll make you fish for something better than fish. See, there's a sort of migratory quality to the life of faith. We need to leave one place. We need to become travelers. We need to become refugees towards another world. In our case, this is a spiritual journeying, a decision to leave behind the life of the flesh and follow Jesus towards his Father's kingdom. We just want to be clear, when we say yes to Jesus, in an instant we become sons or daughters of God, we receive the promises of faith, and we are instantly adopted without change. That doesn't go away. But a yes to Jesus is also a yes to becoming what St. Augustine called a refugee spiritual to embracing a life on the road, a life that isn't at home in the world and isn't yet at home with the Lord. It's a life in the in-between. James K. Smith puts it like this. He says, so much of our restlessness and disappointment is the result of trying to convince ourselves that we're already home. The alternative is not escapism, it is a refugee spirituality. 
unsettled yet hopeful, tenuous but searching, eager to find the hometown we've never been to. Isn't that story of Abraham? Go and find the hometown you've never been to. The poet Wendell Berry wrote about his ideal life as at peace and in place. We can only be at peace and in place in this world, in Glasgow. We can only not get the itchy feet of the 21st century if we get this, that we are not at home here. And that is okay. Because we're on a journey towards the hometown we have never been to. Just like Abraham, we are wandering, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. And think about when you go on holiday and maybe you're going on a holiday soon where you jump from place to place, you spend two nights here and two nights there. When you rock up at your hotel, you don't make your home there. You, you live out of the suitcase. Maybe you put your t-shirts in a drawer, but you certainly don't start decorating the hotel room and ordering someone to come and fix the bathroom. You don't make your home somewhere temporary. Abraham is called and we are called to be on the road, to have a light step in this world and a firm grounding in eternity. So we must go. We've got to go like Abraham. Jim Elliot, the missionary, once said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the call of the kingdom of God. Give up what you can't keep, the things of this world gain what you can't lose, the hometown you've never been to, the kingdom of God. It's God's promise to Abraham, it's God's call to Abraham, and amazingly, Abraham responds in faith. He has some big questions which we'll come to in a minute, but he goes. We see it in the passage we just read, he went as the Lord had told him. This act of faith becomes the ongoing basis of his relationship with God. <clears throat> Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. Here's Abraham staring into the unknown, unsure of how God's promises would be fulfilled, probably afraid, definitely unprepared, and he had faith. Before the sign of circumcision, before the giving of the law, to Moses before Abraham had done anything at all he finds himself folded into the loving favor of God purely by faith by faith alone the apostle Paul picked up on this verse in Romans 4 from verse 3 he writes this what does scripture say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So he's saying, he's saying that faith has always been the currency of God's kingdom. It's not like Old Testament works were the currency and then Jesus comes along and frees us from that. Faith has always been the currency of the kingdom of God. It is not possible, Paul says, to please God without faith. To try and please God with works is like taking your pound coins to Hungary and trying to trade in them. 
It's the wrong currency. It doesn't work. It's a currency that's not accepted in the economy of heaven. To follow in the footsteps of Abraham is to recognize the only way that you will enter the friendship of God is by faith. Not by your religious background. Not by where you're from or what you've done. Not by what you've achieved or how well you've behaved, but by faith alone. And faith is trust. When I lean on this pulpit, it's because I trust that it will hold me. Because I trust that it's made well enough to stand. Faith in God is like that. I can lean on the promises God has given me. Because I trust the one who made them. I trust the one who carved them out of nothing. Abraham knew he could trust God. And so God counted him as a friend. Abraham had faith. And yet mingled in with his faith, Abraham doubted. Genesis 15 again, verse 2, he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Because I remain childless. And then look ahead with me, if you were to Genesis 17, from verse 15, God and Abraham have a conversation God said to Abraham, it says, As for your wife Sarah, do not call her Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? There's a serious problem with God's plan. The entire thing is contingent on Abraham having a son. How can he be the father of a great nation if he doesn't have any sons? But Abraham's 100 years old. It's a few years past the ideal age to start a family. One commentator writes that Sarah's womb is twice dead. She spent her entire life unable to conceive And now she's gone through menopause and is 95 years old. If God was looking to choose the ideal couple to fulfill this promise, he's made a huge mistake. Abraham laughs in God's face. How is this even possible? He seems to say, God, I trust you, but this whole thing is laughable. We'll look at this next week, but Abraham and Sarah so doubt that they take one of their slaves and they force her to have a child with Abraham. It's what we would today call rape. They take the slave and they so don't trust what God is doing that they forcibly impregnate her. Ishmael is his name and it's Abraham's attempt to try and fast track the promises of God. It's Abraham's attempt to self-fulfill God's promises. But his doubt is understandable, isn't it? He's 100 years old. Through the eyes of circumstance, the things of God can seem next to impossible. Abraham looks at the idea that God might use him and laughs out loud and says, God, I'm too old. You today might be looking in the face of God and laughing out loud and saying, Lord, I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too afraid. I'm too broken 
I'm too embarrassed. I'm too shy. I'm too sinful. You've made a mistake, Lord. Abraham laughs. So often we do too. The story doesn't end there. We've seen God's promise. We've seen Abraham's response. And now we see God's power and his grace. Have a look again at verse 17, uh, chapter 17 and verse 19. Abraham laughs. Look at God's response. Yes, but. Yes, but. She will bear a child. Yes, you're too old, but your wife will bear you a son. Yes, you're too weak, but I'm strong. Yes, you're scared of public speaking, but I will give you the words to say. Yes, you're too sinful, but it is my joy to save sinners. Yes, you're broken, but my kingdom is a kingdom of broken instruments. Yes, but that's the language of the kingdom of God. Don't challenge God with a laugh in his face because he will prove you wrong. Yes, but your doubts and weaknesses are not powerful enough to derail the promises of God. The laughter of mockery makes way for the laughter of bewildered joy. Look forward to Genesis 21. From verse 1, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who could have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. God miraculously gives Abraham and Sarah a child, and his name is Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs. Everyone who hears this story, Sarah says, will burst out laughing with me. When God fulfills his promises by his power, not by yours, Something miraculous happens where the mockery of a hardened heart turns into the bewildered joy of a saved sinner. How could it be, grumbles Abraham. And then, how has this been, laughs Sarah. Do you see, the words are the same, but the joy is transformed. Would this story have been better or worse if Abraham and Sarah were in their 30s? Far worse. For one, there would be no laughter in this story. See that? The stories of God's kingdom have laughter in them because God delights to use broken things. The story would have nothing of the kind of joyous howl of faith that it does if it wasn't so ridiculous. Maybe Abraham was just 50. God, couldn't you have just chosen someone that was right on the edge? Now, God chooses to use people that are way past the line so that the earth will be filled with a joyous howl of faith. God loves to use weakness because he loves to demonstrate his power. If Ishmael was Abraham's attempt to self-fulfill, then Isaac, the laughter of God, bursts into the world 
as a testimony of God's scandalous grace. But here's the problem. Isaac doesn't bring blessing to the nations. Abraham dies, and Isaac dies, and they never see the land. They die without becoming a great nation. They die without blessing the world. We need a third son of Abraham. We need a third son of Abraham. Have a look, just to finish, at Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament with me. Galatians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 6. Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, there's that verse again, Paul goes on. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And now look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He did not say and to seeds as they're referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. You see what Paul's saying? His promise wasn't about Israel. His promise was about Christ. Not the plural offspring of Abraham, but the offspring singular, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Let's work back through. Abraham was promised relation. Well, we saw it earlier, didn't we? Jesus says in John 14, if you know me, you know my father. In fact, Jesus would go as far as to teach us to call the holy God of the universe, Dad. J.I. Packer writes this. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. It's the fullness of the relational promise to Abraham and it's found in Christ. He has God as his father and when we are united to him by faith, we take on his status as the beloved son of the father. So the Genesis promise of I will be your God and you will be my people is fine. We have something much greater. I will be your father and you will be my children. Second, a nation. Abraham's nation was ethnocentric. But Jesus came not just to the descendants of Abraham by blood, but to the descendants of Abraham by faith. So this nation isn't limited to one bloodline, but to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. The sons of Abraham in the time of Jesus were countable. Just do a census of the land of Israel and you've counted them. The sons of Abraham today are legitimately uncountable. In the billions, the sons of Abraham have filled the earth. There is no name on earth that is worshipped more than the name of Jesus. That's a fact. He is fulfilling his promise. He is establishing his rule and reign on earth. And on that note, he fulfills the promise of vocation. You think the land of Canaan isn't inhabited by God's people anymore, and you might prefer if we didn't wade into the waters of the land of Israel 
this morning. Good news, I won't. But here's the thing, the original Eden mandate to fill the earth with the glory and goodness of God is coming to fullness again. In the kingdom of heaven that is coming, it will not be a barren wasteland with a garden to hang out in. Now the glory of God will fill every square inch of our world. Not only will Canaan be holy, but every single town and village and city on earth. Nowhere will escape the presence of our God. Lastly, salvation. All the nations will be blessed in your offspring. The Apostle Paul wrote that there is one name under heaven by which we can be saved. That name is not Ishmael, and that name is not even Isaac. That name is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of God. Everyone who has faith in him finds themselves counted among the stars of the sky that number Abraham's children. If you today are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then thousands of years ago when Abraham stood in the desert, killing himself laughing at the audacity of God. He was laughing at you. He was laughing at the thought that 5,000 years later, in a small island north of Europe, a bunch of Gentiles be worshipping his God. What a scandal. Abraham, I will make you, one man, a great nation. And he laughed, and he laughed because we this morning are singing the name of Yahweh. Your faith is the object of Abraham's laughter. All the world has been blessed in the offspring of Abraham. A random farmer from Ur of the Chaldeans. That news shouldn't cause us to sit and think that's some fun biblical theology. That news should cause us to howl in gospel laughter. Me, Lord, how me, should cause us to sing our hearts out and pump our fists for joy. Because this is what God does. He takes small things, he takes obscure things, and from them he orchestrates the grandest scheme of salvation. And it results in Jesus, the Messiah. His promise is great. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet this morning, his call is costly. Repent, follow me. But if we will have faith like Abraham, even mixed with our doubts, and just like him, that faith will be counted to us as righteousness. It will be counted to us as friendship, with God and by his power and grace, we, even us, can be saved. The Gospel of Luke says that in that moment, when one sinner is saved by faith, heaven is not silent, but heaven is filled with Abraham's laughter, with the fullness of joy as each sinner comes home. The moment that you placed your faith in Jesus, it wasn't just Abraham laughing, it was God. It was God who is overjoyed to call you his son, to call you his daughter. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you can make a decision that will cause heaven itself to erupt in laughter. All we have to do is place our faith in Jesus, the son of Abraham. 
Let me pray for us.